When the Negroes first moved into Chatham, there was a two-year period of transition which threw the entire South Side into a state of fear. It is the story of Chatham and West Avalon to which we now turn our attention to find out what happened five years ago and what has happened to the community since then. There have been many boundary lines in this city which have been barriers between colored and white neighborhoods. Most of those boundaries have proved temporary and artificial and have disappeared. A new boundary line is the Illinois Central Tracks running diagonally across the south side. The tracks separate the areas. The all-colored neighborhood of Chatham lies just west of the tracks. Let's see what has happened since the Negroes took over the homes and apartments in Chatham several years ago. We got something special today, huh? Something pretty nice. Okay, so we're nice. gonna talk today. We're gonna, today we got Nick with us. Hey guys, <laughs> um, we're gonna talk about um, the political history of uh, how how would you put it? Uh, Chicago public schools developments, Chicago community. We got a, we got a little public schools. We got a little civil rights. We got a little neoliberalism. We we got. A little bit of everything, I think, in the in the stories. So. We got some babies and we got some grandchildren. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. Some mutants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So we did a little we did a little homework on this and we looked into uh, an article that you wrote about um, building a constituency for racial integration, um, um, choice and magnet schools in mm -hmm. Chicago. And um, so I had a sort of you know sort of picture of of how it all worked out, the history and had my own impressions, but why don't you, could you give us the sort of Cliff's Notes versions on, on what happened? So, so what, what was the, who are the key players and yeah. what, who, who, who are the daddies and what do they do? <laughs> and what was the drama? What was the sort of plot of, uh, the, the progression that happened? What is it? So basically mid sixties into the seventies and eighties with respect to changing neighborhood composition and the role of the school in that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good, that's a good, uh, frame to put, around it. Uh, yeah, the story is basically an attempt to try to explain where this thing, this policy thing called the magnet school came from. And so if you grew up in a large city in the US, you've probably heard of magnet schools. You might have heard them kind of confused with other stuff like charter schools. Um, but magnet schools are this unique innovation that came out of the late 60s, uh, proliferated pretty widely then in the 70s and 80s, and they were uh, racial integration mechanisms. They were mm -hmm. attempts to create what they called voluntary integration in large urban cities. And so in Chicago, Chicago is actually like one of the first places where they do this, where they invent this thing called magnet schools. And so the, the story is really about where this idea came from and how a set of kind of middle-class parents plus some academic sociologists got together and came up with a technical solution to what they believed was an urgent civil rights crisis mm -hmm. uh, that was was being pushed aggressively by a, a, a pretty impressive uh, civil rights coalition in Chicago, but how that solution, the magnet school, was ended up putting us on a different Mm -hmm. path, uh, a path towards school choice, ultimately, uh, in a lot of large urban districts. So that's kind of the, the longer story, but, but we could go back to the sixties to maybe if we want yeah, to maybe let's that. start from the beginning. So, yeah. so who were the players and uh, how did you put it? Like 
the uh, who, who are the daddies and what do they do? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or, or what was the problem that people perceived that they were responding to in the yeah. ways that set up the further issues? No, like, what was the problem? Yeah. Well, the, the problem it depends who you, who you asked, um, but I think. You know, one one way to look at this is through the lens of what we might call the the civil rights coalition in Chicago as it was emerging at the end of the 1950s. And so this included, um, you know, uh, traditional civil rights organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League, um, but then also, uh, you know, smaller local uh, organizations and their liberal allies, for lack of a better term. And so... Um, sociologists and uh, education experts tended to be liberal allies mm -hmm. of the social uh, of the civil rights movement in the urban north and the problem that a lot of these folks saw was that you know after the brown versus board of education decision in 1954 which made uh you know segregation of schools illegal in the united states um you are getting a lot of northern civil rights activists looking at their cities and saying, well, you know, our systems are just as segregated as the ones in the South. Mm -hmm. um, but how are we going to, how are we going to do something about that? Um, and there's efforts to bring court cases in the early 1960s in Northern cities to try to bring a similar remedy, like bring basically the power of the state to uh, d demand a desegregation plan for large or uh, large cities. Um, but they, uh, they lose in a lot of those cases because there isn't a law on the books mm -hmm. making white schools, Negro schools, et cetera. So they have to, the, the question becomes, well, what is, what's the mm -hmm. actual mechanics of how segregation works in the urban North? So how do you end it? Not only in law, but also in fact. Yeah. And so I think in Chicago, it's interesting because there's a, a pretty diverse mix of perspectives coming in to try to attack this problem. There there's, there's the, the liberal sociologists at the University of Chicago coming up with with their plans. There are, um, I think, some some very like overtly left oriented activists in the um, in the, the civil rights local civil rights coalition. And then there's a lot of ordinary parents um, asking, "What's happening with my schools? And 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 how can we do something about this?" Uh, but the you know the to that is questions about who's the daddies here. Um, you know one of the characters in the story is is pretty notorious in Chicago, and that's uh, the superintendent of the schools, Benjamin Willis. Uh, and Benjamin Willis. So if we shift the perspective and ask him what's the problem, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Um, from his perspective, the problem is post-war migration of mm -hmm. African Americans to the city of Chicago. Well, maybe baby boom too was a yeah, factor. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, huge, huge. Uh, surge in school age populations mm -hmm. in cities like Chicago and concentrated in African American enclaves in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so as that um that school age population uh is there and as the purchasing power of some of the black middle class in Chicago allows them to move further and further south, mm -hmm. um you get the at first you get what looks like the dream of Brown versus Board of Education, which is you get schools that are integrated because you have mm -hmm. black homeowners moving into previously white neighborhoods uh, and the, they send their kids to those schools and those schools become uh, integrated. But the sociologists and the civil rights people are watching this happen. And in fact, what tends to happen is uh, what they ultimately call racial turnover, right? Where, mm -hmm. where you'll get... You'll get some black kids at the beginning of the year, uh, but by the end of the year, uh, many of the white parents will have withdrawn their kids, mm -hmm. or uh, in some cases, moved out the neighborhood, uh, and then so you get the resegregation of these of these schoolhouses. Mm -hmm. And so the prob the policy problem, you know, from that kind of more 
the, from the, I guess the technical perspective is, uh, how do you stabilize these, these schoolhouses? This is like a, the establishment perspective. Will, yes. Willis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think what Willis decides is, and he's encouraged, I think quite heavily by the mayor of the city of Chicago and by the members of the board of education. So that was daily daily, right? Yeah. Richard J. Daly, uh, is that, well, we really have to, um, keep the line between black residency and white residency uh, as sharp as we can um, such that this transition doesn't happen. Um, and so which transition, the transition of all white schools to all black schools, the, the, the racial turnover. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I think so, but when he starts to develop tactics to try to maintain these lines of, uh, so, sorry, to yeah, interrupt, yeah. but just just to be clear. Sure. So the idea wasn't to keep whites and blacks apart, but to keep the whites where they were such that the schools did not become all black as whites withdrew. I think that's what Willis would have said. Yes. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's what he would have said. Yeah. Is there a but? Or? Um, the, so, I mean, it, whether he wanted to keep blacks and whites separate, I, you know, like the, the, there's a lot of this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But the mm-hmm. question, you know, ultimately the, the Civil Rights Coalition in Chicago succeeds in branding Willis a segregationist. Right, that's right. What they call that's him, why right? I ask. Yeah. And um and I think it's not quite accurate to like like in term in practice, he's absolutely a segregationist, right? Mm-hmm. These are segregationist policies. They're policies that mm-hmm. cordon off uh the commons mm-hmm. on the basis of color mm-hmm. uh, and put black people on the on the side of that color line into the less resourced uh mm-hmm. side. Right? But ostensibly at least it was a means to stop white flight. That's right. And I think that's really important because that is the that's the framework in which not just Willis but also his liberal opponents are thinking about mm-hmm. the the crisis mm-hmm. that they want to avoid mm-hmm. in Chicagoland in the middle of the 20th mm-hmm. century. All right, so sorry, end yeah. parentheses. I just No, that's great. That's one, that, one quick yeah. question. Yeah. Um the idea of trying to stop white flight from these areas is this white flight going to the suburbs that he's trying to stop or white flight that's existing within the city. It, it's both. Yeah. I mean, it's like a kind of a, in some cases it's a couple of stops, right? You might move your, uh, some white family might move out of a neighborhood under transition and move to a further South, uh, all white neighborhood, but then later then make another move out to the South suburbs. Right. Cause I'm um, wondering like the idea of someone like Willis or daily would be, we want to keep the money in the city. Absolutely. And you know, the white people have the money that we want um, and if they're not moving out to the suburbs, I wouldn't imagine that would be a problem if mm. they're just moving around the city. But if they are moving out to the suburbs, then the white flight becomes a problem for Daly and yeah. Willis. Yeah. And it becomes a, a, an obsession, you might say, even among those people who ultimately call themselves integrationists, mm-hmm. right? the people who want to solve this problem of segregated schooling, um, but really see that you can't that you, we need to solve that problem within this rubric of preventing white flight. That becomes an obsession for the people who Got are, it. who are, uh, who are designing these programs of, of integration. So is ending white flight a white obsession? Because I imagine, mm-hmm. I remember during the election, people are saying, you know, Biden's picking Kamala Harris, uh, for white middle-class PMCs, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. because it's the right thing to do. Um, different people care about different things. And some people are obsessed about like, you know, the good white not wanting to leave the Southern neighborhood and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, was that an obsession? Who who was screaming loudest about that? About, about preventing white flight? Right. I, I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to think of people who aren't saying it, right. except for black folks who 
you know, if they are, you know, feeling like that they're getting access to good neighborhoods and good schools, mm-hmm. they don't really care that much if the white people leave, you know, right. like that's, that's, that's Why certain, should they? right. And, uh, so, so for them, the, that transition, uh, doesn't really disturb any of the stability that they have until, uh, Benjamin Willis decides to start messing with the attendance boundaries such that Mm. their schools, which were, you know, understood to be kind of better schools in Mm. better neighborhoods start to become overcrowded Mm -hmm. and start to, um, include a, like a, a, a more class diverse population of Mm -hmm. African-American students, which also kind of aggravates some of the middle-class black homeowners who move to those areas in order to have Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of separate enclave Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, homeowner based privilege, which is why many people, you know, move to those types of areas. So to reframe it, like with the black middle class being injected, um, would they have a problem with white flight with like, not, not so much like the white person, but Mm -hmm. capital fleeing those areas, which means that um, instead of integrating the schools just with middle-class black people and giving them access to good schools, Mm. you're integrating them with multi- you know, multiple, multiple classes of black people. Mm-hmm. That's how the segregation seemed to be working, which means that their schools get diminished again. So it seems to be more of a class dynamic in that aspect. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're, you're hinting towards like this question that the sociologists and some of the civil rights advocates are asking, which is, well, how do we, if we think integration is the solution to segregation, we need to actually build a constituency for integration. We need to figure out who is, who's down to integrate. Mm-hmm. Right. And that perspective, and, and just to back up a little bit, like they're frustrated in the courts. There's, there's court cases that are coming down in the early sixties showing that in the, in these so-called de facto Northern scenarios, the courts are not going to come in and mandate some sort of uh, enforced desegregation at a system-wide level. So what the solution becomes is something called voluntary integration. And in that concept, the idea is we need to induce the, the, the well-meaning white folks, the ones who are, who, who say we don't want to run away from the black people because that's racist and we don't want to be racist. Um, And the, Black folks who also have, and this is the way that some of these sociologists are putting it, uh, the the right characteristics for integration with mm. uh, with the white folks. So it's already skewing, <laughs> right? Skewing in the a very right a very particular like um, I, I forget the exact phrase. There's a there's a phrase that one one guy uses where they're something like where where the the discrepancy of uh, perspective and capacity is not. Uh, at polar opposites, or some, something like this, right? <laughs> uh, so, so basically, so saying they're that, professional managerial characteristics. Yes, yeah. Uh, that, PMC, that, right. Integration is for the 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 the, the middle class for the uh, for the for the professional classes, right? And it's so it's devised as a way to um, induce this, but it's based on a very like cynical view of the rest of the city in general. Mm-hmm. They're basically saying like the only people who have any kind of like appetite for integration is this very narrow band of mm-hmm. middle-class black people and middle-class white people. And the only people who are worthy of improvement are the middle-class. Right. Because the, the contempt for the people you can smell reading the article, the sociologist mm-hmm. didn't like people, but let's, yeah. let's get back to the narrative sure, though. Sure, sure. I feel like it derailed you. Sorry. So, no, so, no. no um, uh, so Willis is trying to solve this, but he does it in a way which sort of stokes it. Yeah. No, he does it in, in, uh, he basically heightens the, the, 
the thesis of of the civil rights coalition in Chicago. They say, you know, they say correctly that Chicago's system had from the beginning been built in a way to um, to create to use geography to create segregated mm-hmm. school communities for mm-hmm. for blacks and whites, and that Willis in this moment of baby boom and post-war black migration is now doubling down, tripling down on, on this. So the civil rights coalition see an opportunity. They say, let's, let's publicize this, right? Let's, let's get um, some studies done. So urban league and NAACP come out with some very like finely grained studies showing exactly what, what Willis is up to. Let's get a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So let's get some of these, um, these agitated, uh, out south middle class black homeowners to come in and do a lawsuit mm-hmm. uh, against the school system. They get two of those mm-hmm. into the court system. Um, those fizzle out and ultimately just come to a uh, um, an out of court settlement, which results in a mm. uh, the 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 award, so to speak. At the end of that, is to do a create a working a blue plan, uh, you know blue ribbon panel working group to propose a plan for the desegregation of the school system. So a couple of these like plans come out uh, in the early '60s, and it's in those plans where you see the the kernels of this idea of a choice based model of integration, mm-hmm. which curries really explicitly towards the middle class populations uh, to cre- to create that that integration. Um, but I do think there there's other things happening at the same time because as the civil rights coalition is uncovering this malfeasance on the part of Willis and is doing the 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 propaganda, I guess you could call it. I mean, good positive propaganda, I would say, but like trying to show that these kind of gray suited technocrats like Benjamin Willis and and Richard J. Daly are really just as segregationist in their practice as the you know the the Bull Connors and the um, you know the George Wallaces and in, in, in the Deep South. They're doing that work and creating a pretty large coalition of sympathizers and and active participants in a in a movement in Chicago, um, include in in lots of different African American neighborhoods um, led by different uh, organizations, and that movement kind of makes its its biggest play and its biggest statement in October of 1963 when they organize uh, a system-wide boycott. So 225,000 uh you know kids stay home from school. Uh they wow. do a big 10,000 uh you know person rally downtown and it's this big symbol that the leaders of that boycott really want to accentuate because this is what I think is interesting. They're they're they want to show that the movement of African American political activity in Chicago in 1963 is not just these middle class mm-hmm. black homeowners, mm-hmm. um, and and or the or the political friends of Daly. Daly has many you know uh, black political class allies who are you know who are part of his organization. Uh, they want to manifest an alternative vision of mass political demonstration uh by ordinary working class african americans in chicago and that that boycott demonstrates it and it does attract attention including martin luther king's attention and the sclc who come to chicago in 1966 to organize a a a northern front in their in the civil rights struggle um so that i would say is like that's what's interesting about this moment in the early 60s is that there's a lot of different stuff happening Mm -hmm. but the long arc you know is what i think is kind of unfortunate is that it's that technocratic piece of mm-hmm. targeting the middle class and their academic ambitions and uh-huh. their anxieties about uh, 
property values in homeowner communities, that's the thing that ends up getting baked into school policy over mm-hmm. the long run and not this kind of alternative vision of of working class power mm-hmm. or mobilization in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not able to be kind of hung together over the long the long the long haul. Okay. So I feel like that's phase one, chapter one mm-hmm. coming to a close already getting a foreshadowing of the what's to come. So then then what happens? Who Then where does it go from there? Yeah. Um, so I guess so. Yeah. So there's that, you know, the big burst of, of demonstration and energy in the in the early 60s. Um, but it should be said it's not effective because at, at, the, the, the claim, the uh, the demand at that boycott was to get Willis to resign. He does not. Really, he, he, he is uh, that he had had this like weird thing where he he did resign and then was invited mm-hmm. back into his job and all this kind of stuff. But they they had they wanted him out. Um, he did not leave until 1967. Um, but in the meantime, you know, there is some sense that civil rights coalition in Chicago would like to get the feds to come in and, you know, use the carrot and sticks that they use in mm-hmm. the South to get Chicago and daily to do something about the, about segregation. And, but there's this pretty famous moment in 65, I think where the, the civil rights coalition in Chicago basically authors a complaint to the Health Education and Welfare Office in D.C. to try to get them to step in and intervene. Uh, and for five days, the the feds actually do freeze funding, federal funding, to the Chicago school system as a threat to say, like, hey, you got to come up with a desegregation plan. We, we, we've seen the reports. We've seen all the data about mm-hmm. what you've been doing in trying to keep these, these school systems uh, segregated. So we're going to withhold this money. But the difference, and this is, I think, important to understand about the urban north versus the south uh, in the civil rights movement in the '60s, is that Daly is a power broker, probably the power broker yeah. in the in the he's Democratic the, Party. He's the president maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when so he's in New York City for some uh, conference, and he sits down with Lyndon Johnson, mm. and and basically says, "Call your dogs off, right? We don't, we don't like, you know, we'll take care of it, right? I know, I know Chicago. I know, I know how to, you know, massage black discontent, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know how this works, um, and." And Johnson and the feds pull pull away their threat. They unfreeze the funds, and basically desegregation is returned to local control in Chicago. And so it's under that local control aegis that they come up with the Magnet School as the uh, okay, consolation so- prize for this right. kind of uh, a fizzling movement for right. educational desegregation. And so, okay, so phase two begins really here. Exactly. So 1967. Uh, they put out another Chicago Public Schools puts out a big report and say, okay, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do desegregation, but we're gonna do it using a voluntary method. And so in that voluntary scheme, they're basically kind of bringing back those early '60s um, middle class kind of homeowner uh, uh, anxiety driven solutions and putting them into like really bold civic visions. Mm-hmm. So there's this like crazy part of the report where they say. You know, over the next twenty years, we're going to develop these um, massive mega campuses of magnet schools, uh, and uh, we're going to build them on these peninsulas out in the middle of Lake Michigan. We're going to we're going <laughs> to landfill and build twelve peninsulas all the way from from Irving Park down to Seventy First Street, uh, and at the end of each of those peninsulas will be a massive uh, schoolhouse of integrated uh, education. Mm. Uh, now, this is all like. Hot air. Nobody, nobody thinks this is actually going to happen. Um, but the pilot programs that they initiate as part of this 1967 
uh, DSEG plan, those pilot programs become the city's first magnet schools, which are, again, schools that are purposefully uh, integrated by quota. So they actually have mm-hmm. like percentage numbers on them saying like this many black kids, this many white kids. And, and there's, you know, by, by after 1970, there's this new racial category on the census, uh, the Hispanic Latino category. So oh. they start to use that uh, also, which is kind of an interesting other side story here. But um, so in any case, these magnet school experiments that have, that, that kind of come online at the end of the sixties, early seventies, those are the, they become the flagship schools in the system because those those are the schools that are again currying and enticing those middle class populations that they desperately don't want to leave the city to attend, uh, and that's the I, I think the the story of what integrationism kind of becomes uh, in in that in that moment. It's no longer a movement for equalization of mm-hmm. uh, you know of, of the city's politics. It's it's this technical um, you know white flight abatement program basically. Mm-hmm. So they specifically targeted the black and white middle class and they they intentionally, I guess, left out the working class were white and black. Well, what do they need? And education how, for how, how did they do what mechanism did mm-hmm. they use to do this? Like, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you're trying to pick the best and brightest to go to these magnet schools yeah. and it's by quota. Mm-hmm. What infrastructure did they have to build in order to test for mm-hmm. the best and the brightest? No, that's a, that's a good question. And I would say there, there are like, there are people who are self-aware enough in this moment, you know, to say like, Hey, you know what? We don't want to, we don't want this, these to be just these like curated elite spaces. We want these, these schools to be open to everyone. Uh, however, like a couple things happen. Like I'll say this though, like one, one of the early magnet schools uh, that that's opened up on the North Lake front um, is this, you know, state of the art, um, glass and steel complex that's built uh, in, it's an uptown, uh, a border of uh, uptown and Lakeview, right on the lakefront. And the designers of that school program, they are actually thinking through this idea. They're like, well, you know, in addition to integration by race and color, we want to have um, a diversity of class composition. Mm-hmm. And so they actually devise a quota system uh, on the basis of the parents like occupation and income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they create a kind of a gridded, I guess, uh, um, quota system within their school. Um, but that does kind of speak a little bit to how class is understood through this liberal perspective is mm-hmm. that these are like, um, it's just another way to be diverse in some mm-hmm. way is like, right. the, is the way this is seen. Um, so there is some self-consciousness on the part of the actual educators to, to say like, we, we don't want these to be exclusive places. Um, but when you have this, like only a couple of these magnet programs open and the publicity for those is not really, you know, they don't have like kind of full dissemination of these programs. It does tend to attract people from a particular class background, um, and ambition, uh, Mm -hmm. who are being drawn to these schools. And I would say by the mid seventies, when they opened the first kind of flagship, um, magnet high school, they really kind of a lot of that, those egalitarian impulses have been kind of shed and they're, and they're like basically saying we need, um, I mean the, the Chicago Tribune as, as might be imagined is like very unvarnished in its elitism. Mm-hmm. They say we need 
elite academies in, in, in Chicago. We, this is the, the knowledge economy, you know, is mm-hmm. this knowledge thing, economy. right? The way they, and, uh, so well, we they say like, it wouldn't hurt to have one elite school. Or exactly. Something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and the building, the, the, that high school is built right in, you know, uh, almost on the, on the wreckage of the riots that followed the Martin Luther King assassination in 68 on the, on the near West side. Uh, and it's also, and this is another irony when it's built is seen as kind of a signal of, uh, you know, a real estate renaissance on the near West side, you know, even though it is by, by definition as a magnet school, not going to have a tenant's boundaries, right? So you can't live near it and get access to mm-hmm. it. Um, but it's very construction as a place where the city's best and brightest are going to attend, um, you know, kind of signals the, the rejuvenation of that area mm-hmm. uh, at that point. Does this go into the idea of uh, the neighborhood school versus the magnet school? And I believe, I don't know if I'm in getting ahead of anything, mm-hmm. but um, the some of the neighborhoods said we need a quota for people from the area to be in these schools as well as integration based on race and class. Yeah, no, and that that's what that that becomes really interesting because by the by the late seventies, these schools, the magnet schools, which had as their initial you know uh, reason of being uh, racial integration, are being built. And, or at least like rebranded in a lot of different neighborhoods. And so they are seen as like, these are hot commodities. These are places that you want to mm-hmm. go. And so if you, uh, a couple of them that are plopped down in Lincoln park, um, which is by that point of, uh, becoming a much more upscale community, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it was, I think you could call it a mixed income community at the, at the beginning of the seventies. Mm-hmm. It was working class back in the day. Yeah, so. sure. Right. And, and I mean, there's, there was always like an enclave of, um, these, uh, you know, the rows of, uh, of middle-class professional class, um, uh, brownstones and two flats and so on that that were kind of like prestige blocks mm-hmm. in Lincoln Park. But yeah, the 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 rest of the class character of the area was was um, included a lot of working class people. Um, but by the by the late seventies, you know, it, it is a it's an up and coming neighborhood, and parents who are moving into those areas um, are asking exactly like Thaddeus said that like, hey, here's this magnet school in this area. Um, I want to have access to that magnet school, mm-hmm. and and so they kind of bring back. The neighborhood school concept, which is which was always the you know the thing that the magnet was supposed to mitigate against, which was if I buy property in an area near a school, I want that I'm buying access to that school, and so that starts to resurface. And they do start for a short bit of time, they do create like neighborhood set asides for the people um, in these uh, in these areas. Now that gets leveraged also by working class people too. So like on the near West side, the, the high school I was describing there, that was, that was Whitney young high school. Um, when that first opened, uh, the local working class populations in that area, they got organized and actually demanded to set aside for their kids mm-hmm. in the opening classes mm-hmm. of this very elite urban high schools. And these are, did know, they get it? They got it. But only for a couple of years. It was phased out uh, uh-huh. eventually. But what I think a that's surprise. yeah, no, very surprising. And I think like you could not imagine that happening. Well, what a surprise that it was phased out. I mean, no, exactly right. Yeah, that's I, I that I think like if we flash forward like to the 1990s, there are a lot more Whitney Youngs. These types of elite college preparatory selective enrollment magnet high schools that open in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And by the 90s, you could not imagine a working class constituency demanding set aside seats for themselves on the basis of their proximity to mm-hmm. the school. Mm-hmm. It's, it's simply off the table. 
Like the, well, the, the working class in the interim had been destroyed, basically, right? As far I mean, politically, that, yeah. There's they don't have a uh, right. They don't have a movement. They don't have organizations that uh, are going to push for you know their priorities in these in these educational spaces. They've been replaced by um, by nonprofit uh, <laughs> nonprofit organizations and mm-hmm. and uh, and foundations, philanthropic foundations are are doing the ed reform work by that point. Mm-hmm. And kind of touching on that, um, is it? That kind of produces a type of brain drain from, you know, these working class areas. If you have the best kids going to these magnet schools, eventually, you know, these parents are going to want to be near these magnet schools. So they're going to move. So now, basically, the class composition of the areas, you know, around the magnet schools are going to change. Maybe that's wrong. And what you're left with is people with less political power, because it seems like what Daly and Willis are focusing on is the people who have political power Mm -hmm. and that's the middle class, black and white. Mm -hmm. So when you remove them from their connection with the working class people in the areas that they were, you basically separate, you take the power away from Mm -hmm. those working class people to Mm -hmm. an extent. And I'm wondering how that dynamic worked out in, you know, the later formations of these magnet schools. Yeah. Let me just jump on that thought real quick, because it seems like you go from white flight to middle class flight, Mm. and then the dynamic is established for proper ghettoization. When when all that's left are uh, fragmented working class or even lumpenized communities, Mm. if 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 the black middle class leaves the neighborhoods because of, because of this dynamic that was put in place by trying to stop white flight mm-hmm. then i mean you've really only made it worse and then the, and at, at that point it wasn't even willis that was doing this it was right. the liberal solution yeah. that was doing this no exactly yeah no i think that's an important point and i mean i think like the i think in another article somewhere i kind of point out like this was i'm trying to think what when that when that study comes out is it the like the william julius wilson uh you know sociological stuff that comes out at the end of the 70s where he says you know, that part of what, whatever the ghetto is by the seventies and eighties is, you know, it, it's a, it's a socioeconomic, you know, dislocation now uh, wherein, um, you know, the middle-class African-American population is able to, to extract themselves from, from the neighborhoods that they used to live in. But my argument here is that like, you could even stay in a neighborhood that maybe you you know, if you're a, a, a middle class person, um, but your kids could leave the ghetto school before you leave the ghetto, right? That's so, what I was wondering about. It's yeah. just a step on the way to them moving out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in many cases it would be right. Definitely in, at the generational level, it would be. Um, but but to you know, to Thaddeus's point, like what's happening in the dynamics of those local neighborhood schools is pretty clear. Like it, it, the 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 inducement of choice for the motivated or the academically gifted or what mm-hmm. have you is going to pull those motivated kids out of those, those community schools, those neighborhood schools and in, induce them to attend, uh, the magnets, you know, and later the, the charter system, you know, does this again. Um, and the, 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 you know, follow on effects of that is this depopulation then of schools, which mm-hmm. becomes the rationale for their closure in the right. early, in the early 21st century. Um, and I, I mean, I want to like put some nuance around it. You know, there is like at that individual level of parenting, like, you, if you see a school that is really like understood to be an unsafe place where Mm -hmm. gangs are predominant, right. And where academic standards seem extremely low, Mm -hmm. um, 
these programs of choice-based inducement to try to go to some other magnet mm-hmm. academy or, or later on a charter, like they do seem quite, you know, like good opportunities for escape for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. but it, but it's, it says something about what, what the, the system is giving you as solutions. Mm-hmm. It's all about you, the individual consumer now mm-hmm. have these men, right. this menu of options that you can maybe save yourself, uh, from mm-hmm. the, from, from a, publicly funded institution that you're supposed to be entitled to. Right. 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 You know, but um, yeah, I mean, that's that. that well, let's, so not just nuance, but perfectly clear from the micro level viewed in the micro level, individual action uh, motivations and intentions and so forth. It is perfectly rational to want to um, it's perfect. It would be irrational. Well, and maybe perhaps altruistic, you could spin it that way, but Mm -hmm. it is perfectly rational to want to send your kid to a better school. Mm -hmm. But the upshot um, is if all the individuals have the same micro level behaviors and, right. and, and thoughts and beliefs at the macro level, the upshot is you implode your neighborhood because what you've done is you've torn the heart out of your community by mm-hmm. destroying your school. Right. I mean, yep. that is, I was talking to Thaddeus before we started and he's, you know, complaining about Chicago drivers as usual, trying to get over here. <laughs> and he's like, this guy, this guy always tries to cut up and get ahead on the on-ramp or the off-ramp or whatever. And it's like, everybody's this guy, you know, yeah. everybody says yeah. me first yeah. and it, everyone thinks that they're the exception to the rule. But if the exception is universal, like if everyone says me first, I'm the most important or my kid's the most important, it's no longer the exception. It is the rule. And that dialectic is the, is what just destroys, uh, it seems to me, it is what destroys it undermines the very attempt to preserve something like people want a better life. They don't want to see their community go to shit. And so they all say, well, you got to watch out for number one first. Yeah. And the and, and when you aggregate that at the macro level, everyone acting rationally on the micro level, that's precisely the avenue through which uh, you destroy things. You know, it's like Oedipus's parents. <laughs> Oedipus parents, they go to the prophet, or the, 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 the man who reads the future. He says, your kid one day is going to, you know, kill the father, marry the mother. So it's like, we got to get rid of this kid, right? Right. The way they try to get, the way they try to get around it is precisely how they bring it about. Right. Oedipus is on the road to Thebes. This guy tries to stop him. So he, he doesn't want to die. So he kills him. He gets to Thebes. There's this beautiful woman there. She's the queen. Why not? And the way he tries to avoid his nasty fate, he left home, right? Is how he brings it about. And so all I can hear in all this is this like terrible irony and dialectic. Like, how do you get from social justice to brazen elitism, which celebrates basically you know it's neoliberalism before neoliberalism yeah they provided the example here and it seems to me like liberalism pmc orientation yeah no i mean i think i I would add to that that like that's that is the irony that that is there is that these these solutions as they're kind of devised out of this i don't know the unique constraints of of mid-century civil rights advocacy you know they, they they come up with this program, which is to say, let's gear this voluntary integration program towards those people who have the the ambition and the capacity to do it, and we aren't winning any court battles, so this is what we're going to do. So there's no there's no like market libertarian ideologue at right. the head of that movement in the in the late '60s. There just isn't right. That but but what they're introducing into the system mm-hmm. is the mechanism by which every individual parent consumer mm-hmm. becomes the ideal mm-hmm. of, right. of what Milton Friedman wanted them to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so by the eighties, you actually do have uh, ideologues in education reform, proclaiming the virtues mm-hmm. of the market. Mm-hmm. 
And well, first is tragedy, then is farce. Right. right. And they are in there and they mm. point to the magnet schools, right? When they do mm-hmm. it, they're like, what are the best schools in these 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 failing, <laughs> decrepit, <laughs> urban statist systems? The belt the only ones that are working are the magnet schools. And you know why they're working? They're working because choice has been unleashed and the the individual decision making power of parents is being uh is, is being su- supported. Um and and so that you know that irony, I think, is it's it's interesting, um, and it is. I, I don't know. I, I think what there are people who push the choice agenda even further in the 1990s, who also claim to not be market ideologues, but cannot think their way out of any other mm-hmm. mode. Right. It's uh, just the impasse of liberalism, yeah. isn't it? Kind of the combination of the meritocracy and commodification, because. Mm. Well, first, like, I'm a product of that flight. My mom went to Oak Park so we could go to better schools. Yeah. And they are better schools. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be who I am without that choice. Right. But then again, you know, um, like, that's, that's like, there's always this aspect in people's minds that certain people will be okay in any system. So mm. people, I've heard people say to me, like, don't you think you're the type of person that would just, like, you were going to make it anyway, right? And that's the meritocracy. So you have mm. merit, mm. right? I'm seeing the product yeah, of but you. But you wouldn't be smarter had that not happened. So it's, you can't, we can't. So that's, that's where I'm getting to. Like, you have merit now. I'm seeing you in the snapshot now. Mm-hmm. You know, you seem to be a professional person. You seem to be, uh, you know. Uh, an academic of some kind. Mm-hmm. You're intelligent. You're an intelligent black man. You would have been okay regardless. Uh-huh. Oh, that uh-huh. stings a bit. Right. Uh-huh. Say so you're an intelligent black man. Right. No one ever as the black man part. You know that's uh-huh. that's that's me. You okay, know okay, projecting okay, okay. things uh-huh. onto them. But um, it's it's like so they believe in this meritocracy where they're seeing the products of a society and they say those products have merit. The products that are meritous have merit, and they would have been okay in any system. Mm. Right. And they're not seeing it as a product of that system. And then so you add the commodification part to that where that's the choice. Mm. Right. So now we're giving the people who would have had merit the choice. Right. When they're not looking at the system that gave them merit. Mm -hmm. Um, So now if people leave and we leave some people in these decrepit systems, Mm -hmm. that's their choice. That's right. Yeah, because they're not since they're not able to acquire or take advantage of this commodity, mm-hmm. that means that they weren't meritorious enough to take advantage of that commodity. Yeah, which means that they didn't deserve it in the first place. So it makes everything okay. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. That the that by the by the eighties and nineties, there's that the cruelty of some of that ideology is apparent in the way that people talk about those left behind, you know, mm-hmm. like, well, they should have put their kids in the lottery for the magnet. Why didn't they do that? Right. Like, and, and, and then That's also brutal. keeping scorn on, on the lack of parental initiative or, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's softer, more like, I don't know, <laughs> sympathetic versions of this of like, well, we just need to, we need to educate these parents about their choices. You know, we need, we need mm-hmm. to uh, build, and there's a lot of like kind of nonprofit parent education and parent mm-hmm. empowerment programming that mm-hmm. comes out in the 80s and 90s which is about schooling parents on how to navigate this maze of choice that the <laughs> system has been designed to proper consumers to give to them right what's well, classic liberal pmc solution if you made a mistake it's because you're uneducated the solution is just to apply more education mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
So what is... Well, I got two questions before we sort of zoom out to the bigger picture. You called it voluntary integration mm-hmm. and voluntary desegregation. The first part's on voluntary and choice. I mean, it seems like... Um, yeah, I want to I want to ask like it seems like the problem is to approach desegregation through choice and and mm-hmm. voluntary means. Uh and secondly, to approach desegregation through integration. My thought is mm-hmm. first of all, don't make it voluntary. Don't leave it up to choices. Right. Mm-hmm. Secondly, don't conflate desegregation with integration. My first my f- this doesn't mean I have already made fully thought out answer but it seems like you can desegregate uh communities without going about it in this integration way which already seems to me to be like the caricature of multicultural diversity you mm-hmm. know this sort of like early 90s uh, cliche public service announcement where i mean first yeah it seems like first of all there's something structural we could do at the federal level or at the state level to make it work and not leave it up to individual incentives because we know how that goes. People are just looking out for number one. That's why you end up with a meritocracy myth ideology. And secondly, can we do desegregation without it meaning like, you know, some kind of racial integration? um, Because if you leave it up to the poor, they're not going to do it. Like my, my and if you they're leave gonna, it up to the middle fight. class, that's the if you leave it up, fight. that's 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 the thesis that a lot of these guys have, or the their understanding, their sociological understanding uh-huh. of urban ethnic conflict is that like if you have the poor's do it, you're going to get race riots and mm-hmm. and fist fights and mm-hmm. gangs and and it, it's not without basis. I mean, that is what happened at the fringes well, but they of, don't these, ask why. of these neighborhoods. Exactly, you're right. The, the the analysis is is just. Like what? What are the? What's the minimal adjustments mm-hmm. to the technical rules of enrollment mm-hmm. policy that we can carry out to avoid these mm-hmm. types of, um, you know, physical altercations that happen at the mm-hmm. boundaries of working class, right? You know, racial mm-hmm. uh, neighborhoods or whatever. Well, because it seems to me like instead of doing all of this, like I reading the article, I was just blown away by, you know, how many other people from their own subclass they would hire as consultants mm. to sort of concoct all of these crazy plans yeah. and yeah, tweaking yeah. and stuff. I thought, my God, just just make a rule across the board <laughs> that every school yeah. has to meet these standards. meet certain standards, and then you know what? Then it doesn't matter. Like mm. you don't have to have, you know, uh, proportional representation of this, that, and the other thing. You don't have to have incentives. You don't have to tickle and nudge people. Mm. It's just like no, the institutions in this country are like any re- modern republic are just across the board. If you're a citizen, then you enjoy these rights mm-hmm. right and and i would also add like that seems to be to me like a proper analysis of how to um approach desegregation and integration mm-hmm. um but even if you wanted to do it as like the pure meritocratic way of doing things why did they set it up as an integration model based on quotas when they could have just you know gotten rid of districts and said if mm-hmm. you want your kid yeah. to go to a better school they can go anywhere. So that means that the people with the gumption, you know, let's mm. say who want a, the people with merit, who want a better life for their children, the good parents, they can send their kid to any school they want. And then you do get the best kids going to the best schools that they can go to and you maintain your meritocracy. But instead, they did it in a way that I don't know if it was intentional, but it just automatically sets up an antagonism between 
people that are in certain areas. If you're mm-hmm. forcing it on people in a way where it's set up on quotas, you're kind of punishing them in a way when you could have just said universally, everyone has access to any school that they want. If you want to go to the school closest to you, go to that school. If you want to go to the school across town, you can do that, mm-hmm. which is another experience I had because I went to school all the way out in Naperville when I lived in Chicago. Mm. You know, and I imagine when I was a kid that if everyone had access to that, then they could do that too. That maintains the meritocracy and it also creates integration and it's a universal rule. But but there's the dialectic right. again. If everyone does it, then it tips the boat, right? Like if everyone is cutting ahead of you on the yeah. on-ramp or the off-ramp, then yeah. you have a traffic jam. Right. So when everyone says me first, everyone says I get the special treatment, then you implode. And I mean, that was the whole problem with with uh, you know, the, the white flight turning into Willis's response and then the response to the response right. and then the response to the response to the response. Like we can't all be first. Right. That's mm. why we need universal institutions. So I mean, did anyone make this argument? Like, no, actually quit dinking around with these petty little Let's make the neighborhood school let, let's better. Let's make it a place mm-hmm. worth living in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean there there were. And I would say, I mean, I would, even at the at the end of the seventies when they they basically scale up the magnet program. I mean the other context I would add in this is that like the 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 emergent emergence of these these models of these programs, these choice-based um, you know, magnet type solutions, they're always brought in at a moment where the feds are about to do something mm. to mandate, right? So they're like we got to keep the feds at bay, mm-hmm. so let's get our blue ribbon our blue ribbon panel commission to pump out a nice pretty you know voluntary program mm-hmm. so they do it at the end of the 60s they do it again in 1977 when the state board of ed was about to do something to chicago they do it again in 1980 so in 77 and uh, and, and 80 80 is when the feds were they the um the consent decree with the justice department in in those two instances that's when Chicago took the magnet model mm. and scaled it up almost system wide. So okay, so how does that? What is that? So basically, I mean, I shouldn't say purely system wide because they retain the, the the grid of like attendance, uh, you know, geographically attendance based, uh, or geographically based attendance policy is still like the the mm. whatever the landscape of the system. But more and more schools are de- designated as options programs, which mm-hmm. is to say that you don't have to live in this in this neighborhood to attend this school. Mm-hmm. So it does it does that thing of turning everybody into a consumer and say, mm-hmm. well like I could go to my neighborhood school, but I also have all of these other options and I have okay. now there's enough of them out there such that maybe um I'm not going to be on a waiting list at every one, you know, that I that and I does uh, that try to does that have the consequence that it makes the the, the neighborhood school, you know, what is it? Um uh, the expression the neighborhood school. Um, chopped liver you know like nobody yeah. wants to go there no very much so and i and i would say that it uh, it also i i mean it, there there's a few things happening cuz there are different like kind of regional dynamics at work so there's neighborhoods that are very resistant to being induced to choose and mm-hmm. and, and in some cases cuz they're perfectly happy with their neighborhood schools and mm-hmm. don't really mm-hmm. want to be mm-hmm. doing the shopping around uh in some cases it's because their neighborhoods are ethnically or racially homogenous and they don't they're not into the whole integration uh thing mm-hmm. um and in some cases those are those are latino communities in in many mm-hmm. cases uh that that uh don't that are I shouldn't say like there's no generalization to say mm-hmm. what's happening but there's certainly like a very kind of strong community based schooling right. uh push coming out of Pilsen and Little Village at mm-hmm. the uh, at the end of the 70s so they're kind of a countervailing force to this like 
let's make everything an option. Awesome. Um, kind of. Yeah. A and why program. should they have to be? Why should you have to unquote, move? The, yeah. And why should you have to? Why? Why should? I mean. I mean, I'm not trying to justify mm-hmm. separate but equal, but yeah. I mean, if the community wants to be the way that it is, mm-hmm. why does it have to be any other way? Let's say you got a Latino community that thinks things are just fine the way they are. I mean, I'm sure there are problems. Let's say it's a big city, but you know, it's a Latino community. It's a whole neighborhood. They should have a right to a good school, even if there exactly. are no other ethnicities there, it, it's, right? It's kind of like if you extrapolate it to like how people relate to Puerto Rico. Like, um, we need to make Puerto Rico a state so that, you know, Puerto Ricans can leave here. That's why I bring it back to, like, the brain drain. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if you have a culture, you want to maintain that cultural aspect of your community. Mm-hmm. If all the kids are leaving mm-hmm. to other communities to go be educated, mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. they're going to want to leave that community. So there's an impetus mm-hmm. within, like, the community and the family structure that says, mm-hmm. we don't want all of our children. Or, you know, if you're talking about a state, we mm-hmm. don't want our best and brightest mm-hmm. to leave to your state Mm -hmm. or to your area Mm -hmm. we want to keep them here so we want you to build us up keep quality people in your community yeah we don't want access to what you have we want what you have to be brought to us Mm -hmm. right and that's 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 a complete difference that's i think that's how working class people think of things as opposed to um you know that that's how blue collar people think of things more than white collar people. So well, yeah, I mean neoliberals of, love it when love it when people come and go because then yeah, you have right. changing housing markets and you have gentrification. You know the real estate people think it's horrible <laughs> when communities stay planted because they can't jack the asset prices up every three years because there's not enough turnover. The yeah, they mm-hmm. want transients. So like, so you grow up in this neighborhood in a community with working class people and it's relatively homogenous ethnically. I mean, I'm not celebrating that or saying that's the way it should be, but people are like this. They like it. Whatever. Why do? Why does it have to change? I mean, they get a good education. They get a good job. And then they move somewhere else. And I mean, what that is, it's like foreign direct investment. You know, you got capital investment in an underdeveloped country and then you get some profits. What Do you reinvest them in the local? No, you just extract them. And mm, so right. it seems to me like that. And and so, I mean, people said they're fighting uh, de facto segregation instead of which go, to go beyond de jure, to go beyond legal segregation. Well, it seems to me like these people are de facto neoliberals, mm-hmm. even though they're not explicit neoliberals. They're mm-hmm. practicing neoliberalism. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's that that's a useful way to think about it. I, I think, or or as as I've, I've said elsewhere, like the, the road from racial liberalism to neoliberalism is mm-hmm. straighter than we might think. Mm-hmm. Right? That's another short, short way of thinking about this. Um, but I will say, like, I think integrationism you know, is the, that's the, that's the ideology that, that kind of comes out of this. And, and like you guys are summing up it, it does it. I think the story tells us like, why, why is diversity such a strong value for mm-hmm. the urban professional classes? Well, part of that is baked into the type of school settings that they were induced to be a part of like mm-hmm. that's that it's cultivating a particular like sense of like the, these kind of cliches that emerged by the eighties, like diversity is our strength. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can actually say that with a, with a straight face by the early eighties in neighborhoods like Lincoln park, where there's integrated magnet schools. And that's a very, it's an odd thing to say by the eighties because back in the sixties, when these things were designed, the, the, the idea of an integrated schoolhouse was that's a schoolhouse that's about to become resegregated to all black. And it's going to pitch the real estate in this Mm -hmm. community to shit uh, in -hmm. terms of its values. And, uh, and so like the, the turnaround that happened where you could create, you could pitch integration, 
like mm -hmm. an integrated schoolhouse as a, uh, a boost to mm -hmm. your local, mm -hmm. uh, neighborhood real estate values, as opposed to a harbinger yeah. of doom. Like that's, that's a, that's a really, that's a, that's a, a pretty imaginative like mm -hmm. set of things, but it required all of these technical, um, both this targeted, um, you know, pitch toward the middle class and this right. very tight racial quota kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, uh, uh, technician and, uh, stuff. Um, and, and, and it does like in the longer term, it kind of does come full circle because by the, by the end of the century in neighborhoods like Lincoln park and Lakeview, where you had a lot of these magnet academies with integrated, um, populations, there's a return to the neighborhood school movement. Yeah. Of because course, the neighborhood nice been, and they exactly, like it. And exactly. then you just end up right. with a middle class neighborhood. Yeah. There's a book that comes out in the, in the, in the turn of the century called uh, how to walk to school. And it's about like, <sighs> you know, uh. movements in among these, these gentrified uh, areas where the parent class in those areas are kind of tired of the rat race mm -hmm. of putting their kids into these lotteries right. and testins and They'd so They kind of just like to have a neighborhood school again. Yeah, exactly. Well, isn't that basically the American model of like, give us your tired, your hungry, your huddled masses. Yeah. Once we've gotten all the best of the tired, the hungry and the huddled <laughs> masses, now we need to do it based on merit. Right. Mm -hmm. We want the best now because mm -hmm. we've already we've already gotten enough to build up this infrastructure to build our power. And now we want to make it local mm -hmm. because well, give us your odds and ends and we'll separate the seed from the chaff. Right. Mm -hmm. So now that we've got what we needed, now we want to keep everyone else out again because, yeah, we don't we, we've gotten your best. Mm -hmm. You know, now we don't need the rest of what you got. Mm -hmm. So stay away. Well, that's also what's so rich, I think, about this about spinning so an integrated school spinning this diversity stuff as a asset or a, strong, a strength yeah. i mean take it back another 30 40 years or maybe 50 years i mean chicago mm -hmm. in new york you'd have schoolhouses with kids from all sorts of ethnicities thrown together maybe they can hardly communicate mm -hmm. yeah because of immigration mm -hmm. uh, and it would have never occurred to anybody to say, to pat themselves on the back and say, gosh, what great people we are. Look at this. This is just, we're just so virtuous. Right. Because you know what? No, those are immigrant working people and they're there because they need to learn how to read um, English in this country that they've come to. And, and it's the overwhelming tendency, I think, with the middle middle liberal type to, to spin a necessity as a virtue. Mm. Like... Um, you know, you know, tiny houses or having cats or whatever. Like, I'm not a wasteful, decadent. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't want what I can't have, and so it just, it's hard to. Yeah, I just don't know how this. Yeah. I mean, there were there were boosters of you know multi ethnic democracy uh, at the beginning of the 20th century too among the school, you know, kind of school reform types uh, attempt to, you know, repackage the cacophony of ethnic uh representation in the schools as a as a strength um you know this kind of ethnic pluralism um but i think i think what's distinct about the late 20th century version of that is how it's being connected directly to this really stratified merit meritocratic mm -hmm. like competition um within schools because what schools are understood to be are the places where you uh you either protect the advantage you have or try to move up a couple rungs uh and that's way stronger in the in the late 20th century and the the earlier an earlier notion of schooling which i think is is worth preserving and was is still around a bit is this notion that they are places to uh, anchors of community 
uh, in a kind of a literal sense of the people around the school building, uh, but also as places to prepare for uh, civic participation in a, in a democracy. Uh, and that was, so a lot of that rhetoric um, has been totally evacuated from the schools by the, by the 20, late 20th century. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, there are reformers who, who still talk in that language, but I, it's the, the reality of what, what the incentives are in the system um, don't really like make that a feature. I don't think. Mm. Right. And kind of, kind of taking it back to a point that Daniel was making um, just thinking about it. Um, the idea of the homogeneity of these areas and why not build up the neighborhood schools mm -hmm. that people want the culture that they want. I don't think it's necessary that people want, like, we only want one race here. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Like, sure. I don't think that's the impetus and that's, you know, to be respected or disrespected because I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just my family is here. Sure, sure. The mm -hmm. people I know are here. My community is here. So build up my community. Right. And I think if you did have just a universal application of resources to communities to build up all communities, mm -hmm. if someone does, that's the choice that people should have. If they choose to be a transient, mm -hmm. they can go to any community without worrying about mm -hmm. whether or not there's opportunity in those areas. And I think that would generate more integration than mm -hmm. setting up quotas. Mm -hmm. When I know that I, my whole city is a network of safe communities, mm -hmm. of well-managed communities mm -hmm. universally, I can move anywhere, mm -hmm. right? Based on whatever I want. I can move there because I like this restaurant there. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black guy. I like Mexican food. I'm going to mm -hmm. move to Pilsen. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I like Maxwell Polishes. I'm moving to Bridgeport. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever, whatever you want. Or... You know, I, I, I know Daniel. He moves in Bridgeport. That's my friend. I'm moving to Bridgeport and mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about the schools that are there. You yeah. know, well, it's I'm, like McDonald's. You can order a quarter pounder in any McDonald's anywhere in the world. Of course, the quality of meat's going to be better in Europe than it is in the United States. Yeah. But anywhere you go at any McDonald's, you can, um, you can get a quarter pounder. Well, it should be the same way anywhere you go in Chicago. Right. Like school's going to be good. You don't have to think about that. What you have to think about is what you want, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the, the thing behind this all and every, and, and I would say like, I mean, you know, Thaddeus's invocation of what, what the landscape should look like. I mean, that was the, the civil rights movement in the, in the mid sixties had a phrase for that. They called it the open city. Mm. That's it. This is that we were fighting for the open city, which by which they meant open housing, um, but also like e equalization of these, uh, of the commons of the, of the, the school resources. Um, but, you know, I think what was underneath that was you know, and, and, and this is what's hard, I think, to like when we were talking a few minutes ago about like at the micro level, mm -hmm. not faulting people for mm -hmm. their the decisions they're making, mm -hmm. which is like if you're in a neighborhood that is dangerous, mm -hmm. right? What you are seeing are indexes of like of all of these post-war processes that evacuated industry mm -hmm. out of the out of the central city, right? And and allowed um, you know, certain, you know, like criminal organizations to basically become the like main mm -hmm. employer in a, mm -hmm. in a neighborhood and their ability to also dominate the spaces in the schoolhouse. Like that's not stuff to be kind of written off as like, well, you know, the, like there, the, the world that Thaddeus is proposing just isn't there right now. And it's not because of the school policy. It's because something else has replaced the, like what should be the, the bedrock of like people's, ability to sustain themselves, uh, like I either they're, they're, uh, the, the labor, uh, mm. market, right? Like the, the, what, what kind of industries are available to give people gainful employment, mm -hmm. um, and count on, you know, a stable 
like lifestyle mm-hmm. around them. Um, the idea that the school is going to fix that mm-hmm. on its own. That's another yeah, that's already illusion a of bias, the, right. This is the, I mean, the, you know, a lot of scholars will call this the educa- educationalization of social problems mm-hmm. over the late 20th century. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable how, how heavy school, like, like how central school policy becomes as the place where all of the, the big, um, philanthropic foundations mm-hmm. start pushing their money in the, in the late 20th century, mm-hmm. because these, these various like reminders that happen that like, Hey, you know, our industrial base and our social, uh, welfare, uh, net is really not addressing, mm-hmm. you know, our, uh, our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all sorts of misery happening in a lot of different parts of the country. Schools are the only thing mm-hmm, right. that the foundation world kind of mm-hmm. sees as like, well, let's put all our money well, in here. That's right? their liberal. That's yeah. the liberal. I mean, from a liberal standpoint, I mean, you basically have a bunch of individuals with thoughts in their heads, like water in buckets. Some buckets just don't have any water in them. Those are the dummies. And you just, you know, you put the, the right thoughts in the heads and then the machines will just function properly. If mm-hmm. people aren't functioning properly, it's because they got the wrong ideas in their heads. So the solution is education. Well, that's obviously myth. I mean, what I'm sensing in all of this and when I read the article is it's a story that begins with real estate, the political yeah. economy of real estate. That means, you know, property and also finance, mortgages and so mm-hmm, forth. Mm-hmm. And it's a story that ends with real estate and finance. Yeah. So it's the like spoiler alert, you could expect this from me, <laughs> but like this is a political economic thing and then the story in the schools, that's sort of the the stage where the surface phenomena play out and this the liberal actors have this sort of constrained limited perspective, all of their light, all of the attention is thrown onto the stage of education mm-hmm. and the politics of education, but of course the subterranean um currents that are determining this course and determining the the sort of ironic outcomes and 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 the 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 weird reactions you know you try to solve it but it goes haywire of course it's political economy so yeah i mean it's pretty clear that the agents well it's weird actually in in fact you said some of them did have a grasp on that but how yeah but the way that it starts and ends with basically fire sector like concerns real estate and financial mm-hmm. you know the finance right. tied up in in home ownership well, couldn't you say that that's kind of the genesis of the problem that it's only localized in the political and financial concerns whereas like what we were talking about if you had some cultural concerns like yeah i want to stay in my area because my community mm-hmm. and my family are here that might produce different outcomes mm-hmm. as far as your thought process we're trying to maintain communities we're not trying to basically build up the mm-hmm. best citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not trying to build up the middle class, let's say. Mm. We're not trying to build up the best middle class. We're trying to build up the best communities. Well, that's for what everyone. you're advocating, but mm-hmm. not the institutions. Because That's what I'm saying. Right. The institutions mm-hmm. we have are corrupt. And I don't mean Because morally, they don't have a cultural I mean, concern is what right. I'm saying. I'm saying the social part of it was negated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was just purely, not purely, but it was based on an economic concern of how do we give people these economic opportunities we're not giving them the opportunity to you know flourish you know socially well this is a question right and this is what i want to ask you because on the one hand it was economic mm-hmm. like you said a lot of these guys were really tuned into the political economic dimension yes yeah. so sociologists and certainly from a and certainly willis was in terms of like keeping it in a certain way which is beneficial mm-hmm. but um but on the other hand, they were so focused on education that it seems like they didn't really understand it. And I imagine that person you just mentioned, who's concerned about the culture of his community, he or she, his or her, 
is going to get swept downstream because if you're thinking about culture in the context of economic dynamics, you don't stand a chance. Gentrification is right. going to sweep you away. Mm. So, I mean, they focus so much on education, and yet some of them were tuned into the political economy. Why did it play out the way that it did? I mean, I, I think I'd say, like, in in the case, there, there's a couple of different camps of people in the in the '60s. You know, like there there are the the sociologists, uh, the academics, who are kind of they're again brought in as as these kind of um, upstanding allies of the civil rights coalition to come up with reasonable proposals mm -hmm. that civic elites could sign on to to address mm -hmm. the the segregation problem. And so part of you know their their uh, massaging of of their proposals has to do with that audience, I think, in some cases. Um, but you're right, pitching it to liberals, in other words. Yeah, yeah, and and but but also they are, I think, hemmed in a bit just intellectually because they are they are correct in their kind of basic analysis where they're saying, you know, since World War II, you know, and actually started during World War II when when a lot of the war industries um, remade the inner ring suburbs around mm -hmm. Chicago and created mm -hmm. these big, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, military uh, production facilities. Um, and then in the post-war period, that also then become the, started to become the, the, the like private enterprise industrial belt too. And that and obviously, you know, you guys know the story of where those jobs continue to migrate, you know, uh, thereafter. But even in the, in the early late fifties, early sixties, these kind of, they, they called themselves, I think, metropolitan sociologists, you know, they saw what that was doing to the kind of the, 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 the industrial base of the city and the, the demographic makeup in schools. And I guess maybe that's maybe the jump that they make where they're like, we care a lot about the race problem, which mm -hmm, we understand mm -hmm. to be a problem in some ways of like two sets of deficient characters. Like there's, there's, there's white people who, who have been kind of trained to see black people as unworthy and uh, strange. And then there are black people who have lost faith in their own capacity. Mm. as a result of the uh, of of american kind of racial systems and so that's the problem i think they were right to say like what's actually scripting those attitudes is this metropolitan inequality uh issue like this outmigration of uh, of industry and the kind of racialized valuation of residential real estate where mm -hmm. you know the the places that uh get occupied by black residents become bad bets for uh, you know, for, uh, for, uh, mortgages and, and, and so on. And so that, you know, they, they see that and they know that, but because they're, they're being brought into the civil rights movement to talk about schools, mm -hmm. that's where they put their solution is in mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, that's where they start to, to create the solution. So you might be onto something, Dan, that, that, that like, that's, it might not be the failure of their own imagination, but maybe the, 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 the ask, like the mm -hmm. the policy world that mm -hmm. they were invited into to come and comment on, mm -hmm. was was necessarily narrow, and you could argue already kind of constrained by the consumerism that's already like there in the way people saw schools mm -hmm. that it, that that they saw schools as these places that you got access to by virtue of where you rented or bought, and it was a thing that you used to kind of upgrade mm -hmm. your, you know, your. Uh, your place in the in the status competition. So uh, like a really robust political economic solution was not an answer that even could have been heard by that audience. Not not in that moment. Yeah, I mean I or I don't, I don't know. I'm like trying to think, you know, it's hard to uh, And was that the limit of the civil rights movement? I mean, is there an implication for the nature of the civil rights movement there or is it just the context here? 
I, that's a good question. I, I think like in, I think Chicago was, would, would have been as best a place, you know, of any to have the civil rights movement as it, as it was, you know, convened to wrestle those questions because it was, you know, they were King and his associates chose Chicago, you know, in particular, because it was, this was a place where the de facto paradigm Mm -hmm. was creating all sorts of misery for Mm -hmm. black people in a large city. um, But that was run by ostensibly liberal democratic Mm -hmm. operatives. So their, you know, I think that ambition was, you know, that was, that that's to be, um, you know, lauded that, that they were, they were saying like, let's go to the, to the belly of the beast here and mm-hmm. pick a fight with Richard J. Daly, you know, mm-hmm. um, because that's the, that's the core of liberalism in a certain way. Like uh, that, that Chicago was the place where the things that the rest of the democratic party, um, you know, could care about when it came to Southern segregationism couldn't really be brought to do anything about in the Northern context. Um, because it was so wound up with real estate and finance and the mm-hmm. rest. Um, I don't know. That's that's and those, like those powers were just too big to tackle. Yeah, I, I suppose. And I mean, I think there's also like contingent features on the ground of what happens in Chicago. The Daily was a very skilled political operative, mm-hmm. and he kind of stage managed King when he came to town and mm-hmm. was able to. I mean, the the contrast of the just the the behavior of the police is mm-hmm. really striking when you mm-hmm. compare like Selma or Birmingham to mm-hmm. Chicago. So in Chicago, the Chicago police are deployed to protect King mm-hmm. and his marchers as they walk through white neighborhoods mm-hmm. with angry rock throwers. Well, the democratic machine has to protect its image. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, they're very, and, and he did that fairly well, you know, like in, in, in terms of what he was trying to accomplish uh, daily, that is. Mm-hmm. So I think how you put it in the, uh, the paper was um, education became a commodity worth protecting equal to real estate. Mm. And um, what I'm wondering, like you said that they brought these people in to talk about education. And like, my question is where were the other people who weren't concerned with education, who were concerned with, you know, commodities and with economics, were they not brought in mm. or were they not there to begin with? Well, you know, I, I mean, I guess like the, the way I might answer that is just to say that the school segregation problem that formed like the front mm. for the what was the civil rights coalition in Chicago at the end of the 50s. So they said this is this is where we're seeing the most obvious abuse of black okay. Chicagoans and where we can pin it on these you know, these, these, uh, Mm. technocrats in the, in the, in the city bureaucracy. So this is going to be our front. And it has a very clear analogy to segregation in the South. Now what that didn't, uh, so I would say there were other members of that coalition who were also kind of burrowing into housing and burrowing into labor. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so that it's not the only front being fought on, um, in, uh, at that moment. Um, so like, I mean, there's a lawsuit brought against the CHA as well, uh, during this time period for their segregative practices of like cordoning off public housing in, mm-hmm. in, in only all black neighborhoods. Um, and then there's, I mean, the, the, some of the other bases for the civil rights coalition in Chicago are, um, are labor unions. So the, the United packing house workers is, uh, is a big part of it. And so there's also, um, pushes to open, um, like these previously racially restrictive trades, uh, to, uh, 
uh, to black workers. So that's, so there, uh, there is other stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of like heat and light on the schools issue um, because they could find, I mean, Willis becomes like the, the icon for mm-hmm. the, for the movement to, to target against. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought that much about, about that. Like whether, you know, if you're going to like Monday morning quarterback, the, the civil rights coalition in the early sixties and say, should you have, you know, found another, found at least a couple of other like, um, urban, uh, policy czars to, mm-hmm. to target aside from the school's chief, you know, like right. what, what, what else could you go after? Cause I'm wondering doing some more Monday morning quarterbacking for <laughs> like, uh, now. Mm. And my question is like defund the police seems to be like an apparent issue. You see, you know, a black man being murdered to me, I would say, you know, you see people being murdered by mm-hmm. police, mm-hmm. that there's a militarization of the police. That's a problem. And that's apparent because people feel that in death and death is compelling. Mm. Um, but on the other side, when we're looking at the the desegregation of schools, it seems like they missed the boat as far as like the systemic issue. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about systemic racism mm-hmm. now, too. And if you're talking about a system and you're only talking about one aspect of the system, you can get, you know, what you said, like the meritocratic um, magnet school solution to mm-hmm. that. Right. But and you're not addressing the system. You're just mm-hmm. addressing one segment of the system. And to bring it to like defund the police, if you're just addressing criminal justice, mm-hmm. you're only addressing one aspect of the system. Whereas right now we just got through with a pandemic and we're seeing problems now that are going to come up in housing mm-hmm. with the eviction crisis and with even more apparent um, health care. Mm. You know, people's lack of access to healthcare in this country. And it seems like if we were to take a systemic approach, we would be connecting the defund the police and the militarization of police mm-hmm. to those healthcare and housing issues, as well as what other issues that I'm not bringing up mm-hmm. that pertain to, you know, the subjugation of the working class mm-hmm. in American society mm-hmm. and how that limits our access to the commons. Um, and I'm wondering if you see any kind of like, uh, analogy between what happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s and what's happening right now in the left movement. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I I hadn't really thought of it to, to analogize to like public safety or, um, you know, criminal justice reform stuff. I got to think about that for a second. I mean, I think like the, the, like your your opening statement on that, you know that like when people see things as dramatic as police violence or just see violence in general, that's the other like part of that picture. I would think, right? Like, like why is there this like heavily armed, like heavy deployment of people into certain parts of the city? It's because of the heavily armed and you know desperate people who are living in a particular area uh, and the question of why that why those areas exist is is the same question right at the mm-hmm. at underneath a lot of the school inequality or school segregation issues uh back in the in the 60s and 70s which is like these these areas are the bottom is falling out of of the liberal opportunity regime that we told everybody mm-hmm. we were securing mm-hmm. in the in the post-war order right so what's going to what's going to come to the rescue here uh, is, uh, is well, it's schools, right? That's the that's the that's the soft liberal answer. Well, uh, the cops, that's the hard, you know, law and order answer. Mm-hmm. And both are, I mean, both were deployed, you know, in the mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. time period. But the school solution is done in this very like 
technocratic uh, kind of piecemeal way. Mm. And then with all this like kind of um, uh, foundation funding. And I think like Dan, Dan had a point earlier that uh, there is this weird um, byproduct, uh, uh, you know, a feature, not a bug perhaps of mm. like, and the more you do all of this downsourcing of educationalized solutions to urban social problems, you're also creating a new set of jobs mm -hmm. for the those new professional class people who are by the late 70s returning to the city, right. living in the city. It's in their interest. Creating this new uh, community, um, and arguably like a new actual constituency mm -hmm. for this type of urban policy. Um, uh. And so I, I think that's interesting too. Um, so I don't know, that's where my mind went from your question uh, about like what, you know, how that might connect. Um, but I would, I mean, I agree with your, you know, your also the opening analysis that like that, uh, I don't know, an approach to criminal justice reform that just looks at like police budgets is really not going to be an answer to the, the reason why policing is as brutal as it is in the United States. Like it's going to be, I don't know, that, that strikes me as like a really narrow. Right. You know, so you think that go. would create more jobs. So of the PMC by the PMC for the PMC. <laughs> So like the focus on education in the past, the ideological state apparatus, yeah. the focus on the police now, the mm. repressive apparatus, mm -hmm. even even like you said, the post-war solution was education and then later it was yeah. police violence. So you think we can understand this too, the, the defund the police thing in a similar way as a liberal preoccupation with something that will pay off for them and with respect to their class interests? I mean, it's not ultimately in the class interest of the PMC to like mm -hmm. just get a few more jobs. I mean, in the big picture, right. it would be nice like to have the idea of. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, I'll say this: I think I think it is a worthwhile idea. You know, I think magnet schools were worthwhile when they they're in their conception. The idea of civilizing the police and mm -hmm. creating social worker jobs in lieu of, you know, um, I guess the 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 punishment apparatus of the police. Mm -hmm. You know. I think that's a worthwhile endeavor, but what I'm saying is if you don't connect that with the other social issues, mm -hmm. you're just going to have to create more of those jobs at the end of the day to deal with the criminal justice problem because you haven't de dealt with the social problems that create that problem. Same thing with the schools. Yeah. You haven't dealt with the social problems that m m give the impetus for segregation of schools. Yeah. You haven't dealt with the scarcity problem. You haven't dealt with the real estate problems you haven't dealt with like you said the jobs problems most importantly yeah if all you deal with is education you failed on every front you're going to have to keep on only dealing you're going to keep on having to deal with education you're going to have to keep on dealing with police if you don't deal with all of these other problems which you know like daniel's saying you're just going to create more social worker jobs which is better than harsh policing but it doesn't Solve the problem. Solve the problem. It's yeah. also great for the system, the economic system. I mean, if you're if you put all the light and all the attention on schools, that means you're not looking at anything else. Yep. Mm. You're not looking at finance and real estate. You're not looking at insurance, health problems. You're not looking at the who who the employers are in those neighborhoods that make people get on the red line and go to the other side of town to do the crummy job. Also, similarly, if all you're looking at is the police. Well, then you're not thinking about the political economic situation because, I mean, the de facto segregation, as far as I understand it, that still exists in this city is thoroughly economic. 
Yeah, no, I think that I think that's that's accurate. I mean, there is like there's arguments I'm sure among sociologists about what to call segregation too. You know, like like, and I'm not as up to date on the 21st century stuff as I am on on Mm -hmm. the way they put it in the 1960s. But um, you know, I don't. A couple things come to mind. I'm trying to think like which which one to to start with. Um, Sorry, I'm like there's a lot of threads in that, so I'm trying to go back to what was your your initial. That is, you were suggesting that. Um, sorry, I was just like what basically, was the last I'm saying yeah. that you have to connect these issues because if you focus yeah. on one issue, you're going to perpetually be, be focusing on that issue because mm-hmm. you haven't addressed the bigger picture. Yeah. Um. So, just so yeah, just to sum it up, yeah. that that's 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 the problem with having, you know, like um popular. Uh, leftism. Well, it seems like they're up to it again, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're up to it again, but now it's the cops. And it comes from a good place, right? It comes Mm -hmm. from a place that seems imminent. It comes from an imminent place. When you see police violence, it seems like an imminent problem because people are dying Mm -hmm. and you're seeing it. Mm -hmm. But you don't see the slow death of an eviction. You don't Mm -hmm. see the slow death of you know, uh, a lack of cancer research mm-hmm. because we've privatized all that research. You, oh, don't you also see don't that. see finance capital or capital flight. Yes. So that, that if we don't connect, and I think the school, the schooling solutions fail to connect all these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're using this historical example as a way to see the potential pitfalls of our current movement, yeah. I think those are the pitfalls we need to address of how do we connect all movements so that we're not perpetually focused on this one movement. This one movement doesn't, this one problem doesn't stay a problem, criminal Mm -hmm. justice. And we never address the other problems because we're focused on one problem without connecting the issues. No, I mean, now I'm thinking through your analogy and like there is, there is an interesting comparison I could think through a little like where if you think of, a movement producing an impressive showing of popular discontent at a real social crisis. So you had that 1963 school boycott that I described that was mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. you know uh, impressive in terms of like showing political power of ordinary black Chicagoans. Um, but then this this weird irony that like well somehow over the next several years that energy ends up expressed in policy terms as this very narrow and targeted like technical solution which has the the urban middle class as its uh, as its intended constituency like what happened right Mm -hmm. so you could see you know a similar trajectory not not necessarily the the class targeted part but definitely the technocratic part where if you think of like the george floyd you know protests everybody talked about what a manifestation of 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 large popular discontent that was um which which i think it was but i think then also if you then kind of flash forward to now and what the political expression in policy terms of that is going to be um i think the, the it's going to be the police accountability um ordinance here in chicago which mm-hmm. uh, which hopefully mm-hmm. will, will pass um and it's a great you know it's a good policy it's, it's one that i would support but 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 the like but you're gonna see that flip again probably where it's like whoa how did we get here we meant something else no yeah and and the defund part along the way is i mean i i think is is just kind of the left flailing around for slogans in in, in a lot of cases um and uh but understanding the the political mechanics of how the you know the the governing class processes mm-hmm. the critiques and slogans of of an activist movement into something mm-hmm. that will be left behind 
in in policy terms mm-hmm. um i heard somebody refer to it as like the like uh what is it the <laughs> like the what, what's an owl like an owl pellet like that that's left mm-hmm. behind yeah, by the, a movement um, you know like uh after it kind of passes like yeah, the, 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 the remains let's yeah say, the... um so that there will be a policy thing that will like be the mark of what you know the current police what right. justice in, thing is but it's gonna it's gonna bear the marks probably more of a certain set of technocratic bargains struck among the the professional classes right. to yeah. solve this one issue yeah. and nothing else not the not the root yeah solves the symptoms not the cause and that's the frustrating part to me it, it always has to be mediated by the professional managerial class and it and they they have a monopoly position on this and that seems to be the point where the boat tips mm. where it just sort of changes into something yeah. else and and i mean that's what's just so remarkable so reading the paper like that the absolute monopoly of this segment of people and it it makes sense because uh, in a certain sense because you know things have to be administered and so forth but um it's hard to it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine anything going otherwise what's remarkable though is that the left itself has such a professional managerial administrative flavor yeah already yeah no i and i think i think whatever I'm kind of curious about that question historically too, because I think in in the in the era after you know this this article and you know this story that we we've been talking about, there is the you know there's a a pretty like dense proliferation of like community organizations in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, but these are community organizations that are very different than the ones that would have been in that mix of some of these civil rights coalitions in the early '60s. In that they are um funded by non by 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 philanthropic foundations mm-hmm. that that's like they're they they depend on this kind of like renewal of grant um and so they're not like mass membership organizations they're groups and, and many of them are very very heavily engaged in educational policy advocacy because that's where the grants are by the so 80s. it's the ngoification yeah and and that might be the reason for the let's say pmcification of the whole thing when when you yeah. have to depend on revenue granted by some do-gooder, mm-hmm. uh, or at least, you know, I mean, some capitalist who wants to assuage his conscience. So that, that mm-hmm. kind of brings to mind, um, like Bill Gates' um, interaction <laughs> with, not with uh, putting chips in us. You know, I'm actually enjoying <laughs> my chip and the connection that I have with all people yeah, right yeah. now. But um, <laughs> beyond that, with his, uh, his, his, his injecting himself into the charter school system. Oh yeah, and you know, we talked about school choice and we can see like, like this is, this is one of the grandbabies. We right. talked about the daddies and what do they do? Right. Now we're talking about the granddaddies and the grandbabies of yeah. the, the uh, magnet schools and the charter schools and like, you know, the PMCification of education and all of the ideas and the NGOification of mm. advocacy yeah. kind of, you know, goes into how we've implemented charter schools in different ways across mm-hmm. the country. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the story I was, I was more recently, I've been looking into like, so fast forward the story of the, of Chicago school reform into the eighties, like one of the big successes in the eighties um, from the, from the viewpoint of ed reformers, I guess um, was this 1988 school reform act, which created local school councils across the entire city. So every school has an elected board at the school level to make certain, certain decisions, uh, about 
budgeting and the principal's contract and and things like this. Um, in 1995, those their powers were severely reduced, so they're mm-hmm. they're much more ceremonial now than than they were in their initial outset. But what was interesting is that like that movement to produce that reform, this this like the local school council initiative, was pushed really hard by um, by these educational nonprofit consultancies, mm. and they knew that in order to kind of push this reform, um, they had to have the community like voice behind it. Mm. Um, but the community, like by that point really meant whatever foundations were funding, you know, in, in the nonprofit ecosystem Mm. in Chicago. So there's this like weird way that by the eighties, you don't really produce like community via the kind of like organizing principles that would have been familiar to the civil rights people in the early sixties. You do it through the, philanthropic foundation because they'll help you prop up these different community organizations. There's real people there. Like it's not just astroturfed, so to speak, like mm-hmm. there's real people in these, in these orgs, but they're not dues paying members of some like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, union or, or, or what have you. Um, so that it's just curious to me, like how pretty big things can happen in state law, state policy, um, by the eighties and nineties, pretty much and by the nineties, especially like, the foundations can really drive the whole mm-hmm. picture. And so they're, they're mm-hmm. behind a lot of the charter stuff and, um, and, and these so-called accountability reforms that, that show up at the, at the end of the century. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a longer part of the story. I don't know how directly connected it is to our story about magnets, but, but I think there are some threads there because some of the, I think I discussed in the, in, in this story, some of the early magnets were also brought, they, they were designed by these kind of one-off consulting contracts mm-hmm. with a, a university researcher mm-hmm. and a um, an educational nonprofit um, uh, org that they would come together, create the policy, and then even in some cases, kind of autonomously run the school for a little while before it became like a full full fledged public school. So some of that that pri- public private partnering mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. part of this, um, I think, really like it gets juiced up pretty hard in the in the '90s. Then okay, and then sort of approaching approaching the end of our. Um of our discussion, how, so penultimate question, mm-hmm. I guess, how would you, unless you got something else you would uh, like to bring up, yeah. how do you view, so how do you view the present as a sort of historical outcome of this? It, like in the context of the discussion of, you know, the magnet school as a response to those problems mm-hmm. and then the development sort of moving towards charter schools and all this whole trajectory you've been talking about, how do you, how do you see the present situation in that context? Mm. Yeah. I mean, part of that is like, you know, I, I, I have to look through it through my own, um, my, my, my lived experience, as they say, cause like, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was, I was, a, I was a Chicago public school teacher for 10 years and, uh-huh. um, in the early two thousands and I went on strike, you know, with the, with the Chicago teachers union in 2012 and that experience, like what I felt when I went on strike was I felt like our labor as teachers was being like disrespected and disciplined in a particular way by a set of forces that I at that point didn't really understand. But now my view is that like what was happening in the early 21st century in that moment was that philanthropic foundation driven accountability movement. Mm -hmm. So that, that set of actors was trying to discipline teacher labor Uh in a particular way. Um, and, provoked discontent among us, uh, 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 rank and file 
you know, teachers and then had a, there was a, a leftist set of organizers um, leading the, the caucus of rank and file educators within the Chicago teachers union who used that, that wow. discontent that we had to mobilize us in, in the strike. That was my, that, at least that again, I'm, that's, just, wow, this is that's not a complicated situation. Okay. So, the, yeah. so the idea from all sides, the idea would be to implode the public system. Some want to do it in order to privatize it and other want to do it because they imagine it would ramp up some kind of labor struggle. Well, no, no, no. I, I, the, I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to mis- misinterpret there. I think like what, what I'm saying is that the, so the, the forces that were driving education reform mm-hmm. at the policy level in the early 21st century were aimed at like a critique of urban school bureaucracies and teachers as inefficient mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unprofessional and, um, and so like, I don't know, th- thick with this like bureaucratic sluggishness mm-hmm. that they needed to be, mm-hmm. um, they needed to be disciplined um, well, uh, but the ultimate horizon was probably privatization. Right. And then there were the, yeah, elements of that movement that were saying like, we need more and more charters because even if we don't further fully charterize the system, what we'll do is provoke competition. We'll make these slugs in the, in mm-hmm. the teachers unions, uh, have to sweat Jesus a little bit Christ. and start to improve the, the test scores on these, on these, these kids metrics, um, and, and all that rhetoric. And the rhetoric was really, really heavy mm-hmm. in the, in the two thousands. Like if you were a teacher during that time period, you know, there were no uh, child left behind, no child left behind. And, and by the way, that was, you know, this was uh or the so no child left behind but then also after that was um uh the race to the top right. which was arnie duncan and arnie duncan was obama's secretary of education who mm-hmm. was previously the ceo of the chicago public schools hi i'm arnie duncan president obama has given our nation and every single one of us a tremendous challenge his goal for the united states is to lead the world in college completion by 2020 by the end of the decade just one generation ago we did lead the world Today, the sad reality is that we're now 16th. In the knowledge economy, this is economically unsustainable. We must take steps now to address this serious crisis, or we will certainly fall short in reaching President Obama's goal of making America number one in college completion again. I spent a lot of time in New Orleans, and this is a tough thing to say, but let me be really honest. I think the best thing that happened to the education system in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. That education system was a disaster, and it took Hurricane Katrina to wake up the community to say that we have to do better. And the progress that they've made in four years since the hurricane is unbelievable. They have a chance to create a phenomenal school district. Long way to go, but that city was not serious about its education. Those children were being desperately underserved prior, and the amount of progress and the amount of reform we've seen in a short amount of time has been absolutely amazing. So, and then that, that was also the era of the Waiting for Superman movie. I don't know if you mm-hmm. ever saw that. It was no. like a piece of like extremely strident pro-charter, anti-teacher union propaganda. Damn. There was like a huge, you know, like for a, for a documentary film, it like got a hugely wide release. It was on Oprah. It was all sorts of, you know, like, um, yeah, just, just boosting of this, uh, of this nonsense. And so it was in that, that, that moment that our teachers union got, a new set of leaders elected to mm. its um, uh, to its leadership, and that that cadre they knew. This is where I, I want to make just to clarify: like mm-hmm. they, they they're not encouraging the like accelerationism of the of the mm. privatizing movement, but they're recognizing that this is the thing that everybody's feeling in the workforce. They're feeling their principles breathing down their necks about more paperwork and more data and more accountability mm-hmm. and so on. And so that um, they were. They knew that 
um, and I should mention the other one is school closures that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm, that like mm-hmm. those, the kind of the follow-on effects of all of this choice mm-hmm. was to start to drive parents away from their neighborhood schools, which depopulated them, which then provoked a whole wave of closures mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. which Arnie Duncan did, um, and then another wave in in uh, in uh, in the 2010s. But um, so that's that gave a lot of like teachers precarity in their mm-hmm. um, you know in their uh, in their work. Um, so there's a lot of like there was fertile ground for a you know, a, a labor consciousness about, uh, about education policy and, and what it was doing to us as, mm-hmm. as laborers. Mm-hmm. So that I think was like, I think part of my own like interest in studying this history is to figure out like, wh- how did all that shit come together mm-hmm. on me mm-hmm. in 2012? Like what are these big, to find out the forces that are being exerted on you. Yeah. yeah. That's the, yeah. that's the yeah, task we all yeah. have but to I, do. I, yeah. I worry today that like, Within the teacher, like within the context of present day zeitgeist of education reform, that the the administrators have a new set of vocabulary to use to try to like discipline and um, mm-hmm. divide their teacher labor workforce. It? The the it's the diversity, equity, and inclusion language. Uh-huh. Yes. So hmm. so in in my day in the early two thousands, the if you were a younger teacher, you were told and encouraged and enticed by your principal to say. Hey, you know what? A lot of these older teachers, they don't they they don't know that they don't know about data-driven accountability and mm-hmm. they don't know about collaboration and they don't know about all these innovative um things. So I'd love for you to become one of our uh, you become a, a leader, lead lead some of these professional development things for for these older teachers who do, who who need to be brought on board um or to be edged out before they retire. Exactly. Now, right? Flash forward 2020s, you younger teachers, you know, some of these old teachers, they have some pretty backward racial ideas. About identity. About, uh, yeah, about equity. Mm. Um, and I'd like you to be the head of our diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'd like uh, you to get them fired so the HR doesn't have to be paid to do it. Yeah. No, and, and it's like, and I'm, I'm worried, I'm worried that like the, the teachers unions aren't going to be kind of sharp enough to recognize mm-hmm. that that's what this is, mm-hmm. right? The, oh, this has been HR speak jargon, yeah. PMC administrative stuff from the beginning is my impression. Mm-hmm. Like reading this article, it was just, I was blown away because it's like, this has been, this has been an administrative HR nightmare from day one. It just takes different forms at different times. And I don't see how anyone can't recognize that now. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, of mm-hmm. course, injustice is bad. We want to fix this. But I mean, it is also rather striking that it is the establishment and authority and appeals to authority uh, that are the media through which that happens. Like, hello, the establishment is grinding people to dust, and then you're going to appeal to the establishment mm. to fix it? Afraid not. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has been HR ideology from the beginning. I don't see how it's not clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think people working in schools, if they are getting that uh you know that kind of messaging from their principals and their administrators uh will start to get frustrated they will eventually feel the way i felt in 2012 it was like this is bullshit somebody's trying to make me feel bad about mm-hmm. my capacity as a worker mm-hmm. and to get me to like turn on my mm-hmm. colleagues and to do dirty work yeah. and divide the workers yeah you know and that's how we felt back in 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 the early 21st century and i, I hope i hope t- teacher labor is is up to the task today too just to recognize that that's that's management's new tool for sure mm-hmm. is 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 the the diversity equity inclusion uh and anti-racism kind of uh 
toolbox. Oh, I've been told off so many ways for suggesting this to people. Yeah. But um, I mean, yeah. it's a better it's a better toolbox in a lot of ways because because it's a uh, it's something that 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 everybody wants to be. Mm-hmm. Good Everyone with. wants to be morally yeah. Yeah. righteous, and and it's understandable. And uh, you know, you can't disagree with it without placing yourself as a bad person. So it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. But um, final round. I want to. I'll lead it off, and then. And you, and then I'll leave you the last word. I just want to say before we log off that um, I think what I'm taking from this is that choice-driven individualistic um, techniques will only result in de facto class segregation. So mm-hmm. in the context we're talking about, you, you know, you you leave it up to choices of individuals. Um, maybe you're squeamish about about government power, or maybe you are, despise the government, you're a libertarian. Um, what you will end up with there is a, a racially diverse middle class school and a racially diverse working class school. If, if you know, if you're concerned about white flight, the whites might just leave, and then you just have a poor black school. And so, when you take the choice route, the individualistic route, the voluntary route, the integration route, the ironic upshot is that you end up with a new kind of de facto segregation, but just along class lines. And so. You know the de facto segregation that we still have is produced by the upshot of that, and that's just that's just political economy. So, I think we should be very clear about that. Well, mm-hmm. I'm gonna like uh, add on to that a little bit first. Um, that you're not just gonna produce uh, class segregation; you're gonna produce racial segregation because you already have it. Because if your only concern is for the middle class. Like uh, Nick was saying that uh, people see, oh, my school is diverse and that's a good thing. Well, of course, it's a good thing if it's diverse amongst just middle class people, amongst the meritocracy. Yeah, you have the best. If if racism isn't like a thing, we don't believe in that. Yeah, you've gotten the best and brightest from all races because race doesn't exist. You've gotten the best and brightest from all people, which means now you don't have to be concerned about the working class. You don't have to be concerned about the white working class. You don't have to be concerned about the black working class. So wherever they exist now is not your concern. So they'll be ghettoized because you've never addressed the problem. Mm. So the problem will persist, right? So that that's my problem with it, is that it's not just a way to perpetuate the class dynamics, that it perpetuates the social dynamics too, because you're never addressing the class dynamics that perpetuate the social dynamics. So those things, the the, the racial uh, ghettos and, and, and the social ghettos will still exist in the same form that they exist. You'll just have a class of people that enjoy the commons over other people, and they'll be multiracial, right? That's the only multiculturalism that will be applied. It won't be applied to the working class. It won't be applied universally. Um, and then kind of uh, to make things a little bit lighter, I'm going to give my PSA from mm-hmm. Daniel bringing up me having to drive here every day. When you see someone with their blinkers on in an on-ramp or when they're merging to get off, they have to go somewhere, let them merge. It'll take two seconds from your day and you're not that important. Civic duty is so simple. Just, just, Just do it as a reflex. See a blinker, let them merge. That's all you got to do. And maybe somebody, if we all do that, we'll all do it for each other and I won't have to curse at Daniel on the phone when I'm driving, you know, and then, and then maybe we can talk on our phones because you'll just have these rules that are automatic and you'll won't have to worry about hitting the guy on the side of you because he's a jerk who won't let you merge. 
We're just trying yeah. to cut ahead of you. Yeah, you. You can divide your attention a little bit more and we can get more done. You then know? we'll all be the good people on the Hill. Yeah. You know, it'll make capitalism better too because we'll be able to multitask and get things done better. So don't be jerks. <laughs> it's good for every system. That's, 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 that's my take. <laughs> all right, Nick, last words are for you. Uh, I don't have any traffic or driving advice, but, but I will, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll second, um, some of the synthesis that you guys came through with. Cause I, I'm glad that came. I gl- I'm glad it was clear enough to, to make sense that way. But I, I think it's true. Like Thaddeus was kind of suggesting that, that these, that there are, you know, layers of inequality that kind of stack on old new ones that stack on top of old ones. And so like the evasion that Chicago was able to pull off with regard to its, like its actual, like patterned racial segregation that was built in the early 20th century and then reinforced in the post-war era, the, the the ability to not have to do anything about that and come up with another solution, which does this class stratification based on choice and merit um, gives you basically like this layering uh, in, in the current system. And I think what'll be like curious to see is what's the next layer, right? <laughs> what, what layers are, are being built right now? Um, and may, we probably don't know yet. Um, but, you know, being aware of it is step one, I guess.